Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to see so many of you gathered here this evening for this National Theatre Platform event ahead of this evening's performance of Downstate. My name is Rana Mitter and I'm chairing this event this evening with two very distinguished guests. And the topic this evening of the play is one that's been very much in the news. Uh, sexual abuse of children is something that because of the Michael Jackson documentary, um, uh, Leaving Neverland, has obviously been something that's very much been in the public eye in recent weeks. But tonight's take is a very different one, more downbeat in various ways, and it, con it concerns what happens in various confrontations with four men who have been convicted of child sexual abuse living in a halfway house in downstate Illinois. We're going to talk about the play in just a moment, but just to remind you of who we have with us here this evening, the author Bruce Norris, whose plays include Clybourne Park, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, the Olivier Evening Standard and, uh, Award and a Tony Award. And uh, he is also, of course, the author of many other plays, including The Low Road, uh, The Qualms, Domesticated, a Parallelogram, and has worked frequently with the uh, famed Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago. We're also delighted to have director Pam McKinnon, artistic director of the American Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco, a winner of the Tony and Drama Desk Awards for her direction of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, also with Stephen Woolf. And Downstate is, in fact, I think, Pam, your fifth collaboration with Bruce. So the two of you have managed to get the measure of each other pretty well this evening. Would you please welcome our guests, Bruce and Pam. <laughs> so, Bruce, an evening spent two and a half hours watching a play about paedophilia. Not everyone's idea of a perfect evening out. What was it that made you decide that you wanted to address this question in drama? You know, I, I've written a lot of plays, and, and of all of them, this is the one that, where I get asked that question most frequently, because I guess the, the topic seems so uh, unpleasant and repulsive and off-putting. And I guess I, a couple of things occur to me. Um, one is that I have a kind of long-standing discomfort with consensus. And um, I think I often write plays that I, um, I intend, for the, pur the intended purpose of which is to disrupt consensus. Is there a sense that you want, therefore, to have us question moral frameworks? Because one of the things that people tend to do when framing moral questions is, at least initially, to make an assumption that that version of morality has always been the case in all societies at all times and always will be. And one of the things that comes out in some ways in the dialogue uh, to, to, to the play is the sense that some of those goalposts have moved over time. Of course. And, I mean, I was just mentioning to someone the other night that um, until the turn of the 20th century, the, um, the legal marriage age in the United States was 10 years old. I mean, today we'd find that absolutely appalling, the idea that some pre-adolescent would be sold off to presumably to a man to be married, but uh, at that time, that was the culture that existed, and, and I think whatever we support culturally right now will be looked at 100 years from now and that will be seen as somewhat barbaric for the way that we looked at, at th these questions. Well, there's a dialogue section early on in the play where you talk about uh, attitudes towards both, towards both capital punishment and corporal punishment, and it seems to me there you're signaling a certain way that there again we have various types of societal norms which have changed over time, and even with the United States are viewed in different ways depending where you are and who you are. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the person in that play would point out that some of the same people who might be supportive of capital punishment would be opposed to corporal punishment when one seems quite empirically worse than the other. 
seems to me. So I th that's the, the kind of um, paradox, I think, that some of the characters raise in the play. Yeah. So I think we have a sense of some of those complexities that are in, in your, were in your mind as you put the, uh, the play together. Pam, you've worked several times with Bruce. When he came to you with this idea, well, actually, should tell us, did he come to you with the idea, or was the play more fully formed when he came to you? But what did you think when you first heard about it? Um, the play was written. And um, yeah, Bruce. I mean, I mean, Bruce gave me a, an early draft, but 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 unlike some writers that I work with, um, Bruce hangs on to his plays for 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 a long time. Doesn't make them public to maybe anyone save maybe his girlfriend. Um, and 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 when and when it is you know when he does sort of hand you you know the the envelope with a printed play in it, it is it is pretty done. Um, and, that, and that isn't to say that, that rewriting doesn't happen, but, but it is on the page. Um, so I, see, I, I read it. I mean, this was a, a commission um, by Steppenwolf Theatre, and the artistic director, Anna Shapiro of Steppenwolf Theatre, read the play and sort of, I don't think I'm saying anything, you know, out of, out of school, but read the play and got nervous, was, was made very nervous by it. And I think I think you even, don't say. And I think and I think even cried in front of you, right? And, and basically, you know, no. and, and well, and you know, and, and well, and oh, yes. In any case, was made very nervous by That's it. That's next season's box office gone. And and, uh, and was 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 at first a little reluctant to to More than produce a little, it, yeah, right? Yeah, uh -huh. And um, um, you know, and 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 let alone direct it. Yeah. Um, she's also a director who's worked with Bruce a lot. And uh, ask, was yeah. that reluctance because of the content of the play or the feeling that just nobody would want to come and see a play like that? No, I think obviously it was the content and the fear. I think the deep yeah. fear that we're all laboring under right now that if, you, uh, if you're on the left and you make any possible tiny misstep in your endorsement or questioning of any sort of uh, orthodoxy of our side, the left, then you are uh, pilloried on Twitter, on Twitter in, uh, in short order. I mean, that you're, you'll be dragged through the mud and your career will be over. And I think a lot of people are just living in terror from that right now. And, well, and, also, and also, I think institutionally, like, you know, as, as a... She's you know, an I, artistic I, director. She's, she's an artistic director. I but just became an artistic director six months ago. And, and one's thinking is, yeah, will, will the institution, will the organization thrive with these stories being told? Or is it a moment where, you know, you will have people picket your, your theater, and so that's a big calculation to make. Although in the particular case of Steppenwolf, I, I think what's, um, what's interesting is that, that that's a theater that, um, that made its reputation uh, from sort of transgressive you know, style of performance. Um, you know, nudity, profanity, violence, I mean, everything that, uh, that was red meat, that blood that they could offer to an audience, I mean, that's how they established themselves. So, so suddenly that we were all doubting the, the, the ability of an audience to wrap its head around this subject matter. I mean, the, the, the Steppenwolf audience, they, they don't really have any problem with um, offensive content. What the Steppenwolf audience can't deal with is ambiguity of form. They're very conservative in a certain way um, about the types, of, the types of storytelling, modes of storytelling on stage. Yeah, they like, they like an, a, a, a hard-edged American naturalism. They like old-fashioned realism. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. stories told in long-form scenes. Yeah. Um, with you know some violence and you yeah, know, some maybe. tussling and you know some bad language, but nonetheless. Well, without giving anything too much away in terms of detail, many of those elements will be pre <laughs> present on, on on the stage tonight. I think it's it's but it's fair but to. When, fair but to when say. I first when I when I first read the play, and Bruce you know gave me you know some uh, some 
some heads up, at least, you know, about sort of the, the philosophical content of it. I mean, but I, as a director, I dug into the story. And it's about, you know, four men, you know, roommates living together. And there's something of an internal pecking order among these four men. I mean, in some respects, you've written a family story. Yeah. There is the proxy for a mother. There is a proxy for sort of the, the ditzy father who doesn't really know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And there's the proxy for two sons. I mm -hmm. mean, it, it's a very, you know, sort of the, the actual story structure of it is, is, is very much a page turner yeah. and very conventional. Mm -hmm. You know, it could almost be a sitcom. Mm -hmm. Except that there is an awful lot of very interesting changes behind the, the scenes in terms of how we, we take the characters. Let's just talk about the characters themselves for a moment because they are drawn with astonishing clarity and nuance. Um, the part of D, who in a sense is the, the dominant figure, you might say, and he is someone who had been convicted 15 years before mm -hmm. of uh, a child sexual abuse uh, conviction, mm -hmm. is now living in this halfway house. And he is a figure who is portrayed, you know, he's not portrayed in any sense, I think, as a caricature. He has dignity, he has a very strong sense of himself, he has tremendous amounts of, of nuance. Mm -hmm. And writing a character with that sort of conviction, but with those sorts of characteristics, that, you know, that must have been a challenge, Bruce. Well, only it's only a challenge if you think that that our lives are are um, determined solely by uh, our the legality of our actions. Um, in the case, I mean, I don't want to. Again, we're not yeah, supposed we to give to away too much. Too much but yeah. but he's he's unrepentant about the 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 relationship, to use his word, that he had, and he uh, feels that it was a relationship of love, right or wrong. And and I and I certainly know many people who are uh, ready to defend uh, many of the questionable relationships that they've had in the past um, on the basis of a, of, of a compulsion or, or a feeling of great affection or love for someone else. Uh, and uh, I don't. There's no part of me that entered into it thinking how do I judge him. Mm -hmm. It was I entered in, into it thinking how can I identify with that person. I mean, I will say, without giving anything more away, that that is one of the most astonishing performances of the evening in an ensemble of cast that gives throughout a really fantastic performance. So everyone here is in for a great treat tonight. And also, I, I do think, I mean, sort of the wonderful thing about this was a Steppenwolf commission. So, Bruce, I think when you were starting to write this, you had a few actors in mind. Absolutely. And, and definitely K. Todd Freeman, who plays Dee, was one of them. And as was Francis Guinan, who plays who plays Fred. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote yeah. a part for K. Todd before, and he um, got a TV show, so he didn't do it. So I, I I'm surprised I'm still generous it. enough to write him another <laughs> one. <laughs> You're obviously all heart, uh, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One element that maybe I'll throw to the director, Pam, is that I should say also that, and this may come as a surprise to those who haven't, haven't seen it, considering the subject, it is a very funny play. Uh, it is dark humor, but it is a play written in a humorous vein. As a director and reading that, how did you think about how to sort of take that? Because clearly that's a very fine line to draw in a play with this subject. And you had to presumably think about how you would bring the ensemble together to make that work. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping, because you know, the, the majority of the people in the room here haven't seen the play, that we're not sort of depicting this as, oh, gird yourselves and get ready. Um, you know, it is a very funny play. And there is a, there, there's also something like clearly on the page of especially our four gentlemen who all live together, they are living in the present moment. You know, so they have backstories 
and we slowly learn what, quote unquote, they have done and why they are living together. But in the present, they are managing, you know, they're buying groceries. They have to eat breakfast. They have to eat breakfast. They have to brush their teeth. They have to answer a, you know, of, of a, uh, a car horn because it's the carpool that's yeah. taking them to work. You know, it is a very pr in the present, you know, um, yeah, sort of, um, um, uh, I mean, uh, Quotidian. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, part of my part of my plan, uh, you know, the project was to simply make us look at people who who we're told are monsters and uh, uh, subhuman in some way, and simply make us watch them go through their daily lives with all the kind of mundane details of living. And I, because I, I thought you can't really look at people for two hours plus, two hours and change and not actually extend some measure of understanding to them, even if they're, you know, uh, people have done terrible things, a murderer or, a, you know, a rapist. I mean, I think just the human tendency is to extend your understanding to people if you look at them long enough, I think. I found myself contrasting it with actually a play that I saw here at the National Theatre some years ago, a revival of Lillian Hellman's The Children's Hour. I don't know if you've, you've seen that, and in a sense, without, you know, going to huge amounts of detail. That's a play which seems to me to have dated quite badly simply because it has this sort of horror-struck element of dealing with an, an element which at that time was regarded as absolutely unthinkable, which was homosexuality. And now, of course, in the 90s and 2000s, it, uh, times had, had moved on. But the play itself s seemed sort of stuck in that very sort of apocalyptic mode. And that's clearly not the mode in which this play uh, um, plays out on the, on, on the stage. I found myself thinking also that when the dialogue is put together, it's extremely natural in all sorts of ways. It's very much a naturalistic play. And sometimes what people are saying is, I mean, I use the word advisedly, almost banal in terms of viewpoints, you know, things like, uh, well, you know, everyone's a victim and, you know, we need to get past things and, you know, we learn from what we've done. It's the voice, it, it, it's, it's, it's what the person has done who's saying that that puts it in a slightly different situation. In a sense, you're giving us expected language from yeah. unexpe unexpected voices. Well, I think they, oh, they've all been, to one extent or another, to some extent or another, um, put through a process that has attempted to sort of reprogram, reprogram them and to give them this new uh, vocabulary that they are supposed to talk about their pasts with. And to varying degrees, some of them are accepting of it and re will repeat that, that um, vocabulary verbatim, and others are, uh, are defiant and are not interested in indulging in that kind of rhetoric. They don't feel it's appropriate, it's um, uh, complicated or full enough to reflect what their internal experience is. But others do because they think that that is the um, necessary uh, language that they should use to help others heal. And in a sense that exposes that language in itself as a sort of code. I mean, there are particular buttons that you should press linguistically to get certain effects. And one of the things that actually, again, you'll see more of this on, on stage, is that one character, Fred, uses certain phrases which he clearly expects to have a certain effect with someone you know, who is basically a victim from his, his past, and it just doesn't have the effect that he expects it, it, expects it to, to, to do. And that certainly discomforts the audience, I think. Right. I mean, I think, uh, I think that the, the character of Andy, uh, uh, who is a, a, a victim, and in, I guess I'd say in quotation marks, is a victim, considers himself a victim, um, is very, very well versed in the, in the terminology of, of victimhood and, um, and is uh, truly suffering from what his past involved but is also has been schooled in this kind of um, 
in a in a in a very rigid idea of what he as a as a victim can expect his life to uh, encompass and i think i think the in my opinion some of that language and the kind of the pro forma uh, aspect of uh, of the of the you know the kind of uh, the stock vocabulary uh, is actually making his situation worse rather than making it better well, and 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 he's also he he also enters this house with something of a rehearsed script, but he never got to rehearse with the person he's going to speak to. So I think that is also confounding yeah, for him. And, that you know, and, nor, and nor, nor is the setting what he expected. So it's been something that he you know, came with sort of language and talking points, and he gets blindsided. And one element of that blindsiding, I think comes to the audience as well. So. We're talking about a character who, as Bruce has just said, considers himself to be a victim. And at one point he uses the phrase, victims must be believed. You have to believe victims. Now, anyone watching that play is going to have you know, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and the whole hashtag me too um, uh, um, uh, uh, scenario in their minds as they hear that phrase. And Pam, I'm wondering, you know, is it wrong of someone, was it wrong of me, to sort of slightly take an intake of breath when, when that scene happens? Um, no, I mean, that sounds fantastic. Get a visceral response. That sounds oh, great. Oh, I had a lot of visceral yeah, responses, yeah, actually, yeah, as did no, the rest of the audience, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, um, I mean, but, but, you, but Bruce, you, you wrote the bulk of this play before any of that. Yes, but it was in, in, in concurrent with, I think, much of the college campus controversies yeah. about um, rape on college campuses, how we manage that, how people uh, might be denied a, uh, the ability to defend themselves mm -hmm. and, and so forth. So it was already in the, in, certainly yeah. in the atmosphere when I was writing the play. Yeah. But although it was written beforehand, I can tell you take that point, there's one element of that, which is basically you put something on stage that really casts doubt on the nature of memory. And I have to say that again, Bruce, anyone who's you know, living post the CNN televising of, of the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearings, for instance, would see a point being made by you there. I don't know if that's the point that you well, want and to when, say. Well, and when we were running it in Chicago, those hearings were, mm -hmm. were, were taking Happening. place. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, there, and, 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 we, and we were in previews in Chicago, um, so still rehearsing in the afternoon and, you know, uh, and performing at night. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there were some shifts in the audience. It, it, made, it made, yeah, made people hear it in a different way. Sure, but it's the, it's the, um, the rigidity with which the position is held. I mean, if you look at the, I mean, the Kavanaugh hearing, I mean, Christine Ford came forward and she spoke very um, simply and eloquently and um, without r rancor, she, she just was stating some facts that she rem remembers from her life. And then it was Kavanaugh's um, denunciation of her and, his, and the fury with which he uh, clung to that, um, the orthodoxy of his, his own righteousness that I think was so off-putting to so many of us. Now, obviously, to 50% of the American population, it was, you know, uh, cause for celebration because they wanted him to be installed, I guess, to overturn, overturn abortion laws. But, um, but his, his uh, perception, I think, by the public was that he was, he was quite unpleasant in his, uh, in his, 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 um, co-opting of the victimhood language by saying that he had been then victimized by the her victim narrative. So it's very, really complicated. So the co-option of that language actually gets to another theme which seems to run through this play, but actually through your work more broadly, Bruce, which is the capacity of humans, perhaps particularly men, to self-justify <laughs> and also to self-delude at the same time. I mean, that seems to be something that's very central to this play. 
Well, that's the autobiographical part. Okay. <laughs> Do you go on? <laughs> I, I don't. I, I, I guess I, I, th I often. I don't know. I often depict the clownish or foolish part of people's behavior, and so uh, um, our delusions are central to that. So I guess I, whether it's about race or economics or sexuality, I guess I feel like everyone's got a got a justification, a tap dance for why you are justified to, in your own behavior. But those particular elements actually do, I think, emerge very interestingly in this play. I mean, let's take gender first. It's, you know, it's a play which has four very troubled and flawed men at its center. But the moral core, one of them is a female probation officer who you know, is very much you know, the kind of straight up, no crap type uh, character. And actually, even the at first seemingly sort of bubble-headed friend, we're never quite sure what her exact status is, of, of, one, of the, uh, one of the convicted men. I mean, I think I can say that at one point, you know, it's pointed out, do you know this man as a sexual offender? He says, yeah, I know that. And she sort of deals with it anyway. The women seem to really, in this, play, this play, be the ones who have no delusions, and the men are the ones who are deluded. Although I would add that, that Andy's wife, Emily, that she's um, very much uh, on board with his project to... Um, to uh, have this confrontation, the con well, I don't, again, I don't want to give away what happens in the play, but um, th th that uh, she's sort of a participant in the language of um, of the victim narrative, and uh, although that's possibly because she wants him to sort his head out, exactly, him, uh, things, exactly, which is, yes. is part of that yeah. too. Yeah. With Pam, were the power relationships on stage part of what made you attracted to the uh, the play? It seems to me that it's about a lot of things, but it's about hierarchy and power uh, in uh, as much as anything else. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess, my my initial reading of it, what I loved so much about it is, I felt that every character f kind of had his or her due at some point, and it felt like there were no straw men. It's not like we were going to take down anyone. We were taking down, you know, um, like like some kind of sort of liberal orthodoxy, maybe, but we're not sort of, you know, we're not, we're not doing it at the expense of any character and that's, and that's it's, it's and that's and that's kind of an amazing project you know to have a, a like have eight, have eight characters and really what we're sort of left with i think is a sense of like oh it's really dire this this is this is a this is a, a, a problem you know you, that that it's uh, that hopefully people's thinking coming out of seeing the play is that this quote-unquote situation is much more complex than what I started, you know, as the lights went down. And that's a delicious play form. Eight characters in search of a moral cause, yeah. so, uh, so, yeah. so to speak. One issue which I thought was rather brilliantly handled because it's there without being ignored, but it isn't made a sort of primary source of confrontation is race. And was the casting originally with three African-American actors as appears on stage at the moment? Did that emerge during the course of the production and direction? Well, that's, no, that's as written. Well, I mean, the, of the four yeah. men, there's two African-American, oh, one Latino. Yeah, one Latino, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, one and of course, you said the, the play was sort of finished, as it were, by the yeah. time yeah. it came, yeah. uh, came no, to the, you. In fact, the character of the probation officer, um, I, was, I was open to any number of different ways of yeah. You know, pursuing that um, ratio. Same with uh, the young girl who's in the play. Uh, I think the the two, the couple, Andy and Emily. I thought Should they would white, seem as yeah. white, seem like white yeah. people and because of the way they talk. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, but yeah, I conceived it that way from the beginning. I mean, I partly because I wanted to provide opportunities for these specific actors from the Steppenwolf ensemble, 
and also because I wanted to partly reflect um, the nature of the prison system in the U.S. that is so predominantly uh, punishes uh, non-white men. And also downstate Illinois. I mean, yeah, yeah, you, yeah sort of the U.S. That's yeah, representing what it looks like. right. the whole of the population, not yeah. just, yeah. yeah. And that, of course, is another way in which the kind of hierarchies of, of power are reflected. I mean, it's made clear in the, in the case particularly of Dee that race is one of the things that quite early on sets him apart in terms of it defines his difficult background in terms of poverty and then mm -hmm. the path he takes. I mean, again, there's that sort of element almost of kind of, um, perhaps not autobiography, but autobiographical reference in that he runs away not quite to join the circus, but to join the performance very early yes, on, yeah, right. uh, Bruce. And, you know, that, that, that you know, suggests a certain well, outsideness as well. Well, I think kind of implicit in the play, but it's it never even quite stated on the surface, is that, is that you have people who, who come from um, rather... Uh, privileged beginnings and people who come from quite unprivileged beginnings and um, and yet sometimes it's the most privileged among us that expect the outcomes of our lives to be perfect and those who have come from less privilege who would expect a certain degree of um, hardship in in your life and so I think they're, they're they're pitted against each other not only in terms of race but in terms of class too and with that of course you have the other hierarchy which in the end does come out and does form one part of the moral calculus that the audience makes about it, which is about age and about relationships. Because of course, everything we said at the beginning of the conversation remains the case that there have been different cultural norms and different cultural expectations about what is appropriate in terms of age relationships between two sets of people. And I think it's fair to say that you know, two teenagers would be regarded differently in terms of uh, breaking a law about age, and many of them often will be convicted, particularly in the United States, it seems often in that sense, but that's regarded perhaps by society in a different way from, say, an age difference of 20 or 30 years, which is the case with some of the characters in the And, and that's the reflected in American legal system, too. I mean, th there are different laws that uh, pretend they're called Romeo and Juliet laws that apply to two underage people uh, engaging in sexual activity, but it's different from when one of them turns 18. But in the end, that comes down to being one of, or perhaps the primary power relationship in the play, along with, you know, there are ideas of race, there are ideas of gender, but in the end, actually, that age difference question seems to be where it, where it comes down. That, I mean, is that, is that a reasonable yeah, absolutely. point to draw yeah, from yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the play on that, uh, on, that, uh, mm -hmm. on that sense? Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't really have a, a, a clear thought to offer on that, but yes, that is the, because I think that's the one that most preoccupies people is the one, is issues of age, age inequality. Consent. And, and cons consent. Consent, right? And, yeah. and, uh, and uh, power inequality. But consent is well. linked to power as well, because obviously if you are 12 or 13, you can say, mm -hmm. I want this, but many would say that that isn't necessarily something you're giving your full uh, ability to actually make a judgment on in that sense. It, it's partly because you said that the play breaks down liberal orthodoxies, and I think it does in all sorts of ways, and I think you uh, uh, said at, uh, at one point in an interview, I hate those political writers who reinforce all the liberal prejudices. But some of these are also, you might call them, if not necessarily conservative president, uh, prejudice, at least conventional prejudices oh, well, as I, well. I, I would say that one of the few areas where um, conservatives and liberals, at least in the U.S., really lock arms is over child sexual activity. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone everyone can hate a pedophile. That's a universal monster. So, um, so in, a, in a weird way, I don't think this play is as much about liberal orthodoxy as it is just broad cultural orthodoxy. Yeah. One of the things that anyone who's seen your other work will gain from this is that you have an always amused view of human nature, but in some ways it seems to be one that is 
if not despairing, at least perhaps slightly despondent about what human beings, and that's men in particular, <laughs> are, are capable of. I mean, again, is that, is oh, that something? I'm despondent about women, too. Yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not <laughs> Equal opportunity yeah. despondency. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. No, I guess, that, I guess that's fair. I mean, I guess I would consider myself a pessimist about, you know, about human nature, but I guess I think there's also rare moments of uh, kindness that I celebrate. You know, I think, I, I, weirdly, I've said to a couple people, I, I kind of feel like, <laughs> this is strange to say about a play about pedophilia, but I, I think this is kind of my most optimistic play in a way, or, or my most compassionate play, because I feel like, in the end, um, what the play really is about is forgiveness. And I feel like we, we live in a culture that, um, uh, emphasizes retribution and um, and reprisal and uh, uh, encourages vigil vigilantism and um, celebrates it now. I mean, I was just looking on some. There was some um, pedophile who was just shot to death uh, outside his home in, Los uh, in Nevada about three days ago. There was one in uh, the Guardian, I think, or the Independent, that was about someone who was beaten to death in a northern England town. I mean, these happen all the time. And then what happen what follows is a kind of internet celebration, a kind of victory dance over the murder of some pedophile. And I feel like it's not unlike the, the, your, the, the girl, what's her name, Shamima Begum? Who, I mean, like, in her situation in, in Syria, ISIS in Syria, she in Syria? Yeah, she joined ISIS, she's in Syria. I mean, and then, and then when, when, her, when her baby dies, uh, then I saw a lot of online celebration of that. And I feel like that represents, if I may, about the lowest level of human behavior, is to celebrate the misery or death of someone else, even if you disagree with them. And I feel like uh, in, in, in this play, unlike most of my plays, uh, there, it ends with, I hope, a, a note of at least kindness rather than um, cruelty. And I think I, I've written a lot of plays that have a lot of cruelty in them, and I don't think this one is quite like that. You don't, unlike, let's say, David Hare, tend to write plays that take a very particular, specific political moment and then put it on stage. It, they're, they're, they're more timeless than that in that sense. And yet, I do have a sense that you do want to put plays on the stage that say something very particular about the modern American condition. Is that something that you are basically doing as a sort of hedge against the future on the grounds that this is a play that could be revived in five years, ten years, twenty years' time? Oh, I don't think any of them will be revived. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't bet on that. Uh, you have to Lillian Hellman, I'm sure I, it can happen I, to all of us. I think I'm writing about the American theatre-going audience. I don't really think I'm writing about for example, conservatives. I mean, I think there's a lot of American um, writers on the left who write plays that kind of are denunciations of certain conservative behaviors, and and that's great because it helps to. It's like a you know a camp around the campfire where we're all getting together as you know um, smug liberals who uh, have common em enemies, and they're the, that's the conservatives. But I feel like uh, the job of a writer is to address the people who are actually there in the theater, and um, conservatives aren't there. I mean, they're probably off seeing The Lion King or, some, or something like that. Uh, so they're really not, a, there's not a big audience in the U.S. at least for, um, uh, among conservatives for, um, for new plays. So that's, you're pretty guaranteed that that audience is going to have a liberal bent. So that's why I think I write plays that are about liberalism and its, and its discontents generally. And try and make uncomfortable the people who are actually sitting there sure. in the audience, which is all of you there, yeah. uh, there tonight. But I mean, I, yeah. I, I, was, I was just going to add to that. I mean, I mean, you certainly don't write issue plays or like rip from the headlines that I'm going to run with it. But as as someone that that I think reads a lot, that you know, sort of, you know, sort of, uh, I, I, we 
Bruce and I did a play about what about 10 years ago called The Unmentionables, which at the core of it was when, among other things, the New York Times couldn't bring itself to use the word torture mm -hmm. for the the Abu Ghraib and yeah, yeah. you know, and, and and this was a play about torture. Mm -hmm. And it it feels, I mean, it's a fantastic play. Um, but we're not really talking about that as Americans right now, so I don't think it's a play that will be revived until we are not talking about that thing again. Yeah, or until we start torturing more yeah. people. Yeah. We've had a wonderful conversation, and I want to give you 45 minutes to get a glass of wine and a sandwich, so can we thank our speakers tonight, Bruce Norris and Pam McKinnon.